What is good, everybody? This is your boy, Michael Zakond, bringing you a new episode of Our Future Podcast. And as always, I'm joined by my co-founder and co-host, Simran Sandhu. How are you, bro? It's nice to be in New York, man. For once, it's not 110 degrees. Me and Simi, we sold our company in a morning brew. Now we study the most successful young founders to figure out what their tactics, growth hacks, strategies are. I want to get into our first story if you're already ready. Let's to, do it. Get it. Yeah. The largest acquisition ever pulled off by college students, Harry Gestetner and Simon Pomp, and these guys are brilliant. They built and scaled their company in 10 months to an eight-figure exit from their dorm room. So from starting the company to selling the business, 10 months, eight-figure exit in the mid-eight figures. So tens and tens of millions of dollars. Like this, and this was not a $10 million sale. Like this was a substantial, uh, like substantial exit. So let me bring you back to these guys. So they were involved in the social media landscape a little bit. They had known each other from high school on. Uh, one of them went to Vandy. The other one went to, I think it was Tulane. Tulane. And I think one of their cousins was blowing up on TikTok. And they were shocked because this was kind of a more controversial creator. And the TikTok comment section was filled up. And But there still like wasn't a single brand that was willing to take a chance on this creator. So they were like there has to be an alternative revenue stream, right? Like we're seeing the creator economy. We're seeing Hollywood in your hand. Everybody's an influencer now, but still remember that when you're trying to get brand deals, not every creator is created equal in that environment. There's a lot of connections you need to make. And if your content is somewhat controversial, it is obviously harder to, you know, be able to monetize a brand. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, we did like a business brand, but for a lot of creators, they often don't have natural tie-ins or like a content format that integrates well with brands. And at the end of the day, a lot of the influencers aren't like good advertisers or business people, totally. right? Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense for them to be able to monetize their platform on another app or service, right? So immediately, what do you think of? Patreon? Patreon, OnlyFans. You think of Patreon, but people forget that Patreon is actually quite an old company. It started, I think, in 2008 or 2009, but these guys saw an opportunity to build Gen Z's Patreon. And I thought the most interesting uh, part about Patreon that didn't fit with the modern ethos was that it was like desktop first. So they're like, okay, we need to build a mobile first app with gated paywalled content, and we need to bring some of the world's top creators to spin up a new rev revenue stream on this app. So anyways, huge success. I think what's interesting to me is this is a simple idea, right? This is like a fully executional idea. Like anybody could have had this. Well, a lot of the stars aligned. I mean, they were at the forefront of an emerging trend. They found the right creator and influencer to partner with. A lot of the pushback they were getting from investors was, does Gen Z actually have real purchasing power? And I thought this was so interesting. And their big rebuttal was like, hey, look at how much Gen Z is spending on Fortnite. Yeah. Look how much they're spending on Twitch and backing the, these creators. So they had all of these um, analogies and other use cases that they could pull from for their own company, Fanfix, and all the success they've had so far. Well, it's crazy, right? Like there were a bunch of people on Twitch just tipping creators yeah. for the sake of tipping them and like maybe getting a shout out. So they saw all these dollars already being deployed into other formats and they were like, we can grab some of those dollars. But they said that was the biggest uphill battle in talking to investors was just how big is Gen Z's wallet, right? Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a different play because 
I think, let's think about like, you know, we always use the morning brew as an example. They had a young audience. They had young millennials, you know, you know, maybe five to 10 years ago. And they always looked at it, okay, like the spending power of this group is only going to increase, right? The average reader of the morning brew is like You're going to grow now. into it, right? You're going to grow into it. But yeah. with, with this product, it's like, no, for one, it's not an ad product. This is like, they need to have the money to like pay for the product the first time that they use it, right? So that was a barrier to them, but they looked at like Madden Mobile. Um, they looked at some of these other platforms. And I think it's also worth noting that OnlyFans also had existed at this time. Yeah. And with with OnlyFans, there's obviously that stigma around it. So why would like a major influencer want to be? They were not. They're not going to bring their fans to, to OnlyFans. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like you you don't want to bring like your friends to like the sketchy bar. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You want to be able to to bring them to a place that feels like there is not only other creators there, but it's a place that people actually want to be and like doesn't have that negative reputation. So between Patreon and OnlyFans, they saw the market opportunity for fanfics. So it really is that simple. You create content that can only be accessed on on fanfics. So yeah, stuff that you can't get anywhere else. The, the way they described it is they're focused on creating paywalls with creators and their fans. Like you can summarize this business in one sentence. Um, what I thought was really interesting is how quickly they grew. I mean, to mm -hmm. have a high eight-figure exit in 10 months is pretty crazy, right? Like, yeah. that's what makes this story really unique in a lot of ways. Well, look, there's a ton of guys that you don't know their name, but they've gotten insanely rich working yeah. with Just very low-key. Yeah. yeah, there's always a player behind the scenes. There's, like, two guys out of Kansas who are on the LLC documentation for Prime Energy, right? They approached Logan Paul and KSI to do the drink, right? <laughs> crazy, yeah. Because they had the infrastructure. They were the entrepreneurs. They knew how to roll out a drink, right? Like they had done a few drinks with creators before, I think. So there is this opportunity to go and partner with like a big name. And it's like, it's a practice we've seen time and time again in the past five to 10 years, right? Wherein celebrities have become co-founders of these businesses. And there's like a kind of more group of behind the scenes entrepreneurs who get those businesses off the ground and actually operate them. So with these guys, I mean, what was their ace in the hole? Like what really made this possible was they convinced Cameron Dallas to be a co-founder and to really get deep with them on this business. Simon described to me two different ways that celebrities come on to yeah. product businesses, right? The first is you bring on a big face for marketing, right? So a co-founder role, a nice equity stake, Kind of like simple, like set deliverable, show up to this party, make this Instagram post, generally just brand awareness. Um, but they were like very intent to not make that the case with Cameron. So he'd been a creator for 10 plus years. You remember him from Vine? He was yeah, the, yeah, yeah. He was this He's like OG creator. He even got a movie. Like, no way. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Years ago, he got a movie. He was a, he was a any true good? heartthrob. And he obviously knew the ebbs and flows of a creator business, right? Right. All over the place. But subscription revenue is the godsend and you know things have gotten better in recent years with like google adsense and like the consistency and modeling around that but cameron understood this problem deeply and he was kind of done being a creator like you can be the heartthrob like you know but when you turn 30 it's like all right all right like maybe i should find something else to do so cameron was really interested in business so they really found the guy at the perfect stage of his career that had all that brand awareness but really like wasn't as interested in just being an influencer anymore and ready to build this company with them. So well, you have to build something more defensible, right? Like even if the highest, let's say highest leverage creators out there, rat race to keep doing Always. more and more and more. Whereas like with the 
business, you can do a lot of the solid foundation work and then it can pay dividends in the future, whether or not you're even attached to the business still. So it makes sense why he wanted to go down this route. I think what was interesting and important about this is the kind of partner that you bring on. I think they were very fortunate in that Cameron was a very uh, hands-on partner. He wasn't like one of those, hey guys, use my name, use my picture, and I'm just going to back out. Right. Like I'm just going to sit around, collect my checks and have yep. a great time. And I think if he was like that, it would have been it much harder. I think it would have failed. Yeah, it would have been way harder to, to I, actually succeed. I really think this all came down to how did these two 21 and 22 year old kids legitimize themselves to be able to get some of the world's top creators to come onto their platform? You know how many pitches creators get every day in their DMs, especially for some service wherein they can pay all their content or do blah, 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 blah. Like it was Getting Cameron Dallas really put the stamp of approval and credibility onto them. And I think that's so important as a young person in business because like the essence of being young in business is you have no credibility. Right. So if you can somehow convince someone to give you that credibility and there's a lot of mechanisms in which to attain it, whether you're raising from like maybe you get like a big like uh, investor on board, right? Like maybe you get A16C, maybe it's Sequoia, right? That's one stamp of approval. Um, You know, another is is getting like a, a partner to go in on to go in with you as like an actual co-founder who has had experience. You know, there's good stories of young founders who've found maybe someone in their thirties or forties to, to come on and like be a co-founder. You think of uh, our story back in episode two of Bo Lin finding uh, Scott uh, to be kind of a champion for him. And, um, or maybe like an acquisition getting uh, a big brand name behind you, like kind of like we did. Yeah. So that was really important. I don't think they could have done it without that, but let's move on. So this is what I thought was interesting. They, when they look for creators, like who's going to come onto the fanfix platform, they look at this metric. How can a creator move uh, different audience members across different platforms, right? So like, how can a creator bring someone from YouTube to this, to Instagram, Instagram to discord, uh, to Twitch, right? It's like, it's all about movement, right? Circulation. I'll call it circulation of audience. And I thought that was an interesting metric in that if you can make people move and change platforms to follow you, you're, you're a creator that they're probably willing to pay for. It's an interesting thought too, right? Like why does a creator join a platform? And I think there's three things that come down to it. Simon and Harry would agree with this, which is first you have to get the monetization piece figured out. Mm-hmm. There needs to be some community or clout aspect to it. And then there needs to be a discovery feature of some kind, right? And I think you need to have all three of those for you to actually bring on a creator and then be able to retain them over the long term. Well, you just mentioned discovery and it's interesting, like, Simon and Harry were, were telling me, like, this could be, we think this could be one of the biggest platforms in the world. Yeah. They were like, the ne- the hit, everything in the history of business only happens once, right? Like, the next Google won't be a search engine. Uh, the next, uh, it won't be a discovery platform, but they think it'll be a monetization platform. Like, distribution has been done. Yeah. TikTok is Hollywood in your hand. How, then how do you get these people paid? Like, how do you get these people paid who are generating these careers and all this attention? That's yeah. the problem they were solving, right? So what I think is interesting is all these other creator economy startups just ran into, like, the free distribution side of things, like a Lincoln Bio or, like, a, a Jelly well, Smack. Well, that, that part is easier, Yes. Right? Getting those vanity metrics is way easier. Getting attention is way easier. Now making money from it, that's an entirely different beast. But what I think is cool is, like, They've used this uh, this profit base. They've used these these revenues, this successful, robust, sturdy business model to then go and expand into other services. So they did something called Superlink, uh, which was a link in bio. And then I, I think there was like a funny story where Linktree like tried to block 
uh, anybody listing fanfics on the Lincoln Bio app, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Because they can. Like, they have this really sturdy business model. Those companies have raised a bunch of money, probably won't go anywhere. It's also their entire business, like, is built on these Lincoln Bios. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. They, they've been able to, like, just tap into the honeypot of other creator economy companies that have yeah. gotten big because they have, like, this core product that's so successful. Um, but in terms of, like, some stats, and we'll get into, like, the acquisition stuff in a yeah. bit. Five millionaires created on Fanfix. Um, there's a bunch of creators doing seven figures annually now. Um, there are hundreds doing six figures in revenue a year, which is pretty insane. That's crazy. Um, they had zero dollars CAC to build this company. <laughs> like whenever you build a direct-to-consumer company, like CAC is, is everything and it eats up all your venture funding and it's a massive challenge, but they were able to do it. They were able to acquire users because they just tapped into the creator's audiences. And that's something that a lot of creator economy companies try to leverage is that like low CAC by working with creators who have all this influence, but they did it down to a T, like literally zero dollar yeah. CAC. Well, you talked about legitimization, right? And partnering with Cameron was the legitimizing moment. And I think once they had his name and his involvement in, in this business, it was way easier to bring on other big creators. And then it's just a freaking, it's a, it's a snowball. It just keeps rolling, right? It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, because one person comes in, now two people will, mm -hmm. then five, then ten, and um, before you know it, all your big creators are, are using this platform, and, and it happened. you want to you be on there too. It happened all yeah. within ten months. So this company called Super Ordinary, which is a kind of like marketing agency, uh, they're known for doing a lot of those deals with like Chinese influencers promoting uh, beauty brands and... They just see the more like social commerce. Yeah, social yeah. commerce. But they just saw the U.S. as like a massive opportunity to like enter, and like fanfics happened to be that flag in the U.S. that they saw at that time to come in and take. And what's insane is just how big the platform was. Like the reason they had such a big exit for like tens of millions was because they probably had just a ton of people using this, and they were already doing like a, a high amount of GMV, and they had like some of the top creators. So it was like it was all locked in. It was like okay now this other company come in with their connections and relationships with brands and like really like turn this into something meaningful. So I think right place, right time. And yeah, there's network effects that happened once they got the first few big creators on. Um, they just kept, kept doing things right. And like, they really focused on their core audience and building this platform for Gen Z. And even as they started to be successful, other platforms tried to, to like overtake them and try and copy them. But they, you know, night and day, uh, Fanfix has remained uh, steadily like the number one source for this kind of content. No one's been able to come close to them. What's interesting about them too is when you ask them about all of the oh shit moments they face in this in this business, a lot of them were all focused around competitive threats. You know, Instagram doing something or Linktree doing something or Snapchat adding some feature, right? Which was extremely competitive. Right. And what I thought was really interesting is when it's an emerging market, it doesn't necessarily matter. You just need to carve out one small piece for yourself and it will continue to grow. And so it may feel really scary when all these big giants start to come into your to your space and now investors are starting, starting to get spooked, but you just have to be resilient and confident to know that this is a multi-year play. This space is growing. And if you can just focus on one small little niche and own that part of the market, you will be fine. Do you want to get into our, our next company? It's also in the social media landscape. Totally. So next company I want to talk about, uh, started by my good friend, Noah Tucker. 
He's building a company called Social Snowball. So bullish on him as an entrepreneur and the company he's building. So a little bit about Noah's journey. Started off into drop shipping, um, as a lot of these e-com cats do, but gets out of it and goes into media buying. Um, I think this is a really important part of his journey. Learned a lot about how brands spend their money, where advertising dollars are going. But a big challenge he was facing was he was tasked with setting up affiliate programs for a lot of these brands. And what he learned is like, it's really hard and really clunky to do that. Apps out there made it impossible to send payments, really hard to generate codes and links, and really hard to track sales too. And so he thought, maybe I can build a better affiliate and referral app. And so that was the genesis for what became Social Snowball. It took him about a year and a half to create a working MVP, spent I think upwards of $70,000 to build this thing out. So it wasn't cheap, but I think there's a lot of learnings here. So now they do a few different things. They help brands create referrals and affiliate programs. They help creators do it as well. And there's so many different other use cases. And now the business is doing somewhere in the seven figures in sales a year. That's how you get brands to, to sign on, right? It's like, how do you generate more revenue for them? Uh, he, he mentioned like an interesting stat in that referrals, like when companies aren't working with Social Snowball, it's like 0.25%. But when Social Snowball is active, it's like more like 4% of new business or of total business is coming from referrals. I think this is a similarity between like fanfics and uh, Social Snowball and that kind of he tapped into a distribution engine that it was already there, right? Like he comes in as a business, he comes in with his offer or his product exists in the part of the value chain that's like the best place to be. Yeah. It's like after a customer's already decided to open their wallet and buy a product, then you get the code to go and share it with friends. It's like, wow, like, isn't that great? You know, you already got someone who's willing to, to buy this product. The hardest part, the biggest uphill battle is marketing. And now you get to like incentivize them to, to become a better customer and a more valuable customer to the brand. It's awesome. Well, well they remove so much friction, right? So what was the typical referral mo model? It was spend five bucks, give five bucks kind yeah. of thing, right? Like, so what would happen is you would spend the money, then you would have to insert your email and then they would send over a code. And if you wanted to refer someone else, then you had to insert their email. And it was like a lot of bullshit that you had to deal with. Now yeah. it's you make a purchase and in the thank you email that you get, there's already a code auto-generated that you can easily share out, right? So and nice. it's, it's so smart and so simple. It's and really, it's yeah, really such, cool. Such a simple product. You can just get the code right there, right then. Like just remove the friction, right? Like definitely he didn't reinvent the wheel. He just knew affiliate was a big opportunity and he just made like a superior product in the space. But it really is nuts that it took him a year and a half to create the MVP. Like again, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like from the non-technical founders, which is most of the people we talk to, because um, their story is obviously more accessible. They had like a relatively simple time, like finding a, a maybe someone on Upwork, but maybe like they were inconsistent. They found someone else. But with Noah, it seemed like a really big challenge working with agencies and developers. He spent 50 to 70 grand of his own money on this product. And I kind of thought that was a lot when you look at Steven Hakami, who spent 3,500. I think this is why agencies get really bad rep. Like it's so important that whenever you're hiring a developer and agency, I know you can't, you may not have a technical background, but you really got to focus on the betting side of it, right? Like talk to other people who have built these MVPs or these apps and figure out what are the right questions at. How can you cut through all the noise and the bullshit because if you don't know what you're doing and you're getting sold on this vision because everything either takes longer 
or it's way more expensive than what it what someone quotes here what you tells you so you got to be cognizant of these things going into it yeah and maybe it just like gives us a more of an appreciation for how it's actually freaking sophisticated to build any kind of tech product like like even like morning brews referral team right like tyler dank like kind of build that product out like it was a fully bespoke feature and software and code that like required a full like team to like build and operate so I think if you think Social Snowball's idea is simple and it just integrated with websites, it's actually like quite complex. So shout out to anyone who builds a software platform. Like they're incredibly scalable, exciting businesses. But at the end of the day, like there is a lot of that upfront work that goes into it, which is why like most people end up with agencies instead of software companies. Well, it's a lot We're more than just the code generation, right? Like the, you have the ability to uh, make payments and you, there's Customize. attribution yeah. uh, software within this as well, right? So it's actually a pretty sophisticated business, but on surface level, it feels simple. Um, something that I thought was really interesting is he highlighted tons of cons on being involved in the Shopify app store, right? This is kind of interesting. So I always thought it was great to be a part of an app store because there was a lot of discoverability involved. It was like, oh, if you can just get featured on the charts, this is great because um, you know, maybe people will take a chance on you or it's a lot easier to get the word out there. Turns out there's not much discoverability in Shopify's app store. And I also think it's really interesting how if you're a premium product because Noah's uh, app starts at $100 a month, you're not going to do well. Um, what these app stores really kind of play into are these products that are essentially free or like very low price. And so that also plays a huge factor in in whether or not like you're going to succeed on, on these on these app stores. Well, yeah, it's once you hit a million on Shopify, it's 15%. Right. Like gone. So off the top, the yeah. big players like don't really want to operate in that segment. So I think a challenge is once you get to a lot of revenue, it's like, do I leave with like the Shopify app store? Like, do, do I even participate in this market? Um, so yeah, I think like a great entry point for building a product, but also like you have to deal with the cons of scale within one of these transaction fee-based environments. Well, it also, also goes to- And also Shopify yeah. ripping off your feature and just adding it to their own platform, right? Well, it's also interesting, right, to, to that vein, because if you do well, you're just going to get ripped off by the platform. <laughs> but what's interesting is that Big brands are actually still more likely to use a much more premium product that's way more expensive because you can customize features out to them in a way that a Shopify or an Amazon or an Apple wouldn't, right? Like there's going to be better customer service. They also know they have more leverage on the work that they're doing with you. And so um, there's a lot more of a better experience involved versus the cookie cutter Shopify copycat app. Um, that may be cheaper on the surface, but it's, mm -hmm. there's actually more costs involved long-term. Yeah. Um, something else that I thought was really interesting about this is you, it's so important to know where your buyer lives and, and what they're thinking about. So the way he thinks about this is where are the big brands that he's going to work with? They're not on the Shopify app store they're actually working with big agencies. And so he has been so intentional about striking big agency partnerships because a big agency may work with 50 brands. And yeah. so he can do a really good job with them. They're going to add him to the tech stack and boom, 50 brands now work with his platform. It's a great like hub and spoke distribution model of like yeah. finding that player. It's almost like going to a umbrella of brands as opposed to like once like single brand. So great sales strategy 
going to a hub and then getting the spokes. Uh, but like agencies would tell brands about it just because they want to seem more valuable and they have a lot of like different tech tools at their disposal. Well, I think it's also like they're providing some service, right? Like a lot of them may have an affiliate portion to their business. And so it's only right. in their interest to have the best, the best tech one. tools, right? So they can do a better job. They At its core, it just comes down to an ROI thing again, right? Like which tool gives them the best chance of providing an ROI? And I think Social Snowball does that. But his real defensibility is through brand, right? There's tons of copycats yeah. that now exist. And what's interesting is if they're on the Shopify app store and some of them have even copied his name to and, the point like, like the website, copy. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, so lazy. Like if you're going to copy somebody, like at least be courteous enough to like change the name or maybe even some of the copy that's being used. But he says that's okay. And the reason being is that you can still you can go after the smaller brands and you can be the lower price pro market, a uh, lower price product, but he doesn't want to play there, right? Because there's, there's just, that's a small room, right? That's a small pond that, that you're trying to build in. Yeah. I, w w another thing I thought was interesting was uh, his business model, right? So just like how the Shopify ecosystem will charge you 15% when you get to a million in revenue, he actually does it the other way around in that Brands, like small brands, will pay like, you know, whatever the subscription fee is, and then three percent of revenue generated through the affiliate. And then big brands will just pay a flat fee. Well, big brands aren't gonna pay a percentage of right of anything. So he actually created a better incentive mechanism for big brands working with him than like you like the Shopify app store. Like Well, small brands are also just so cognizant about their spend, right? So they wanna do everything in performance. They're always trying to de-risk everything and for good reason. But with big yeah. brands, they don't they don't wanna share that upside. I thought something that was really interesting is he would create these free free guides or free playbooks send out these type forms to all the big uh influencers in the space or all the big agencies and he would curate all of the insights in this it's like this free product and then he would like send it send it around like a data report yeah as of sales sorts, of sorts because not only does it add credibility but now all of these big names and big yeah. agencies are a part of it and it's like oh my gosh all these all these important companies work with social snowball like i want to do the same it's such a smart tool wait this is great so yeah. on his website there's a thing that says influencer marketing playbook yes this is the thing I, that's a sales tactic that we want to roll out for the agency, right? Is like creating a, um, like almost playbook for how to do organic. And I think that it's a it's a great way to get people interested because like you're giving them value up front, right? Well, so think about creating like, free resources yeah. is a good, I think, a great tactic we can steal from from. No. There's the, that's the challenge with cold email, right? Like everyone uses cold email. Everyone is trying to get your attention, so. Just going one step further I know. and giving some kind of free guide resource product of some kind that, hey, at least these people know what they're talking about. Maybe I should hop on a discovery call with them of some kind, right? Like I can spend 15 minutes justifying this. Like yeah. it just takes a little bit. I know. Isn't it crazy how it just takes like one incremental step to like do something better and become really successful? Like totally. One little case study in the cold email, like maybe you put their name in it or just a little more personal information. It's like... When you're dealing with a lot of competition, it's just that marginal effort is what's going to make all the difference. And in business too, that marginal feature, just slightly better affiliate program. And now you got Noah with a seven-figure-a-year business. He wants to keep growing it, I think, for another three to five years. But he could probably sell this for millions now. Um, but I think he's going to be very successful if he keeps up this growth and these case studies drive revenue. Like, that's amazing. Like, yeah. that's what brands want. And D2C companies, like, 
It's the name of the game. Like, grow top line. Anything right? you don't like about this business? Um, I don't have any like staunch criticisms for his product. What about you? I just think it's a little competitive, the space. Um, but dude, I think he's doing everything right. Like yeah. he's so invested and he's been doing this long enough that like there's such a big sunk cost involved. There is no turning back now, right? Like he spent several years of his life, he spent substantial capital. I mean, I actually admire the depths he went through. Like the fact that he spent almost all of his savings building out this MVP because he raised, I think, 150K from angel investors, blew it on uh, trying to build out the MVP and realized, okay, like now I got to spend my own money. And then <laughs> pretty much had to, to live a pretty, um, you know, like cutthroat lifestyle for a while. Like, mm. you know, he's not paying himself anything. And eventually I think they had to get to 15K MRR and he was like, okay, I'm going to pay take out a few K just to pay rent, right? Like yeah. he was so cognizant about his spend. And that's probably one of those things where it's probably a good thing that he made those mistakes early on because he's so intentional about every single dollar. Like Noah does not strike me as the kid who's spending tens of thousands of dollars doing bullshit marketing that doesn't provide any results. He's probably right. so thorough and so diligent about all of his spend. He also seems really humble and authentic. I yeah. think the content he creates and the following he's built is because he's focused on this problem. He isn't bragging about his numbers, being trans overly transparent about things like, He's a good dude, and I think a lot of people in the e-com community respect him, and that's another competitive moat for him. I guess I thought about the, the criticism a little bit more, um, and that, do you feel like this is a feature that like any big e-com platform could just add, like a referral management platform? Like Maybe, but it, it, seems it, like it goes, a feature, it goes right? into the thing, right? Like this is his specialty. This is the thing that yeah. he's focused on. For someone else, it it would be just the feature, right? They're they're gonna do it half as well as he can. I guess it's crazy how fat these tech stacks are, even at small companies. Like I remember seeing like these tweets about maybe if it was like Ron Shot Obvi talking about his tech stack. And it was like Social Snowball was in there among 18 other apps. <laughs> it's like wow. Yeah. It's like here's what I do for email, here's what I do for automation, here's what I do for website, here's what I do for fulfillment. And there's so many different apps and services, so to all bring into one. And I think he has also has APIs that connect him to a lot of other services. So if you're playing in a, in a space where there is a lot of technology, it's important to be able to integrate with all the other technologies. And yeah, I, it's, it, it's cool. I, this story fires me up because it's like, don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, and you can have a specialized feature and be the best at it and still play in a space with multi-billion dollar software platforms that these companies are using to grow. Like, yeah, and there's the there's 18 tools they're currently using in their tech stack, and then the reality is you could probably build 18 more tools that they could also use in their tech stack. Like, there's, there, there's certainly, like, no floor when it comes to these kinds of tools. There's always some part of the, the process that you can you can make incrementally better did, and make some money. Did you mean no ceiling? From. Yeah, no ceiling. No ceiling. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of room to grow. It's, uh, it's energizing, this, yeah. this company. It's simple and... He's done a great job executing just like the fanfix guys did. And he's turned regular people into marketers. And it goes back to how word of mouth is the most valuable marketing strategy there ever has been and always will be. Always right? will be. Always will be. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up another episode of Our Future Podcast. As always, it's a pleasure for Michael and I to have the chance to speak into your ears for 30 to 40 minutes at a time every single week. Um, would love to hear any feedback you guys have. Hit us up on Twitter. Um, our info should be in the, in the show notes. But in the meantime, look forward to coming and hitting you next week with another two entrepreneurs that we're so excited to tell you about. 
Um, so yeah, stay frosty. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace out.